You're listening to Data Unlocked, driving better marketing with better data. We're interviewing marketing leaders to discuss how they're using customer data to bring more deeply personalized experiences to market. This podcast is sponsored by Simon Data. We help marketers unlock their customer data to deliver a better customer experience at scale. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Data Unlocked podcast. My name is Jason Davis, Simon Data CEO and co-founder and your host. In this podcast, we explore ways in which data drives creativity and innovation for marketers. And we explore that with the best and brightest marketers in the industry. I'm excited today to have Stephen Aldrich, co-founder and co-CEO of Ragnarok on our podcast here today. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jason. This is uh, it's a real privilege. I'd like to say I've been a longtime listener of the first initial episodes that came out, and I'm very impressed with all the content so far. So very excited to be here. Fantastic. And maybe you can just tell us a bit about you know, Ragnarok and what you guys do. Yeah, so Ragnarok is an agency that my partner Spencer and I started back in 2012. We originally sort of started it out of frustration of working at different companies on the brand side and finding that there's just so much that you want to accomplish and so little you can effectively accomplish at a time, especially in the 2012-2013 era, when you had very disjointed marketing and product teams. And so we decided that what would be great is if we could kind of help bridge these teams together and actually create products that help connect them together and actually get them connected to the tools and the types of processes that enables them to actually succeed in what they want to do. And around 2018 is when we actually decided and kind of found this niche in becoming uh, execution support for marketing teams. And this actually allowed us to be both a consultant from a technical perspective and actual like marketing support to kind of help fill in for teams that either lost a recent staff member or had uh, found themselves in a place where they had just so much stuff that they want to do and not enough resources to do it. We kind of built that out then into a whole sort of suite of products on the marketing side and then continued to hone in on our tech discipline to eventually stand up a whole engineering team that helps people actually integrate different marketing tech tools like Simon Data, as well as the uh, marketing component of that that enables us to build new programs, provide creative services, and the actual execution services. Again, sort of leaning on that technical discipline as our starting point with our sort of core creative mindset to really help brands kind of push the envelope and actually stand up real personalization programs. That's a great story and context for all of our listeners. Ragnarok has been a long time partner for Simon, as Stephen said. And, and maybe we can just sort of start with the technical side of customer marketing and specifically around the data. Stephen and I were talking before the show for a few minutes, and really we were just sort of focusing around this notion of, you know, what's the right data? What data is really required to drive effective customer engagement, effective you know, personalization, uh, and really to drive those you know, proper customer marketing outcomes? So maybe we can start there. And with that, just talk a bit about what does great look like and, you know, and where are so many folks today relative to where they actually are um, with their data? Yeah, so this is a fascinating thing. And if you, if you kind of reflect back to, you know, not even four, three or four years ago, a lot of teams essentially had this philosophy of let's just capture everything and then use it after the fact, right? And a lot of that came from this sort of, again, this sort of disjointedness between getting engineering resources. And once you got them, you had to like really kind of dig your claws in and get everything you can out of them and squeeze it because you weren't going to get them for another month or two. And that philosophy has really sort of changed more recently because a lot of engineering teams built this model where you're collecting everything and then found that after an audit that nobody was using it and then realizing that there's this huge maintenance cost in maintaining this architecture. And so now we're kind of going into this phase that's kind of more, what is it that I actually need data-wise? And that discussion is now kind of being driven by a marketing team. 
But the fascinating thing about that is a marketing team, and I would say about 80% of the time, doesn't actually know how to articulate to an engineering team the actual data that they need. And an example of that is that they might think, okay, I want to build a winback program for people who have churned out of my app. So I need to know the date of the last activity of that user. And then essentially they say, okay, well, that's my winback program. So I will ask that for the engineering team. The engineering team will come back and say, well, how do you form the date of the last activity? You know, what does that mean? Is that last activity on your email? Is that last activity on the application itself? Is it last activity from somebody buying something and eventually receiving it? And so these sort of complex definitions that are now kind of moving into the marketing world to actually have a definition around that. And now we're seeing that that level of complexity with the data is kind of causing engineering teams to be much more of a thought partner in this and to kind of backstop that. The interesting thing about that too is the primary use case of the data sort of originally in this case was, I just want to know when the last activity was so I could stand up a winback program. And now it's, have you thought about what that definition means across everything that this user could touch? So when we sort of see that as like, this is sort of the more ideal data, right? We don't necessarily need all their historical activity. We just need the core activity that's going to determine whether or not somebody is engaged. Now, what this means is marketers being a lot more technically sophisticated, whereas historically they were quasi-sophisticated, I would say, by virtue of working in complicated tools, but didn't have a foundational understanding of what is this data and how do I think about data, not only as the owner of this segmentation, but as the experience that the user is going through, what are all those different touch points that they would eventually engage with? And so we kind of see that this sort of change that's been really shifting is going to continue on that direction. And uh, with, especially in today, with sort of shortage of engineering and shortage of product folks, especially in the US, that demand for more sophistication from marketers to be more technically savvy because there just isn't as many resources available is actually becoming more and more of a precedent. And so we expect to kind of see that marketers are going to just have to be more technically knowledgeable to begin with. And that those lines are blurring a bit between what was a product and engineering you know, ownership is now also in the hands of the marketing team. Yeah, it's a great point. And it's really interesting how we've sort of seen the market evolve. We were at a place, I'd say, five, six years ago, where so many data teams found themselves in the question of, so what? have all this infrastructure, how will this data in the customer, how do I use it? And today, we also find that so many customers are also in the same, you know, same position. But at the same time, if you don't have the applications drive the infrastructure, then so often the infrastructure, the data you've collected, the data lakes, the data warehouses, your Snowflake instances, whatever it might be, if that data there isn't driven by the right application, then it generally can really sort of be a couple of ticks off from you know, where it needs to be to be truly valuable. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And with this, as we sort of look at how the market is evolving, we've definitely seen this transition from taking a lot of the technical competencies that previously were owned 100% by engineering and moving them downstream into a greater degree of ownership you know, within product, within marketing, and with the sort of agencies like yourself to fully enable all of that. Of course, one thing that has come about in the last, I guess, 24 months now is regulations and compliance around you know, how that data is actually collected. And certainly today, marketing and organizations more broadly have a set of considerations and legal obligations relative to new governance measures and, of course, consumers more broadly around things like GDPR and CCPA. So maybe you can sort of just speak to that and some of the challenges you see in the marketplace and, and maybe some of the, the shortcomings and ways that people can get past that. Oh, yeah. And I mean, it's even broader than the CCPA and GDPR definitions, especially when you're talking things like HIPAA and the more recent changes with some of the iOS updates in terms of allowing users to even opt in to sending you their data. And so 
there's kind of been this convergence now, which has always sort of been in the back of everybody's mind of how valuable is my third party pixel data or any of this other data that I'm collecting. Like, I think we've been talking for the last 10 years about you have to own your data, you have to have first party data collection. And so everybody's reaction to that was, okay, well, again, let me go collect everything. Now, when you have to think about, okay, now users are going to get some sort of pop up or some sort of modal on their experience that says, hey, check the box of what do you want us to collect about you? And then all of a sudden you're looking at how do I now categorize the data that I collect? And as a marketer, I'm going to say, well, all the data is essential. I need to have my conversion data. I need to have my behavioral data. I need everything to kind of build my sophisticated segments. If I want to do personalization, I need to collect this data. So after you get past sort of that initial frustration of, ah, I'm being inhibited by you know the laws at play here. The second thing is now to decide How do I categorically actually justify what this data is? Because most people are going to see a marketing checkbox and they're not going to check it, right? It's just intuitive. Uh, No, either I'm going to select all cookies, I'm going to select no cookies, or I'm going to say, you know, okay, well, core things, I guess that's fine. But marketing, do you really need me for marketing? Like uh, as a user, I don't really feel comfortable with that. And again, this is an anecdotal sort of survey of one right now, but across the board, as we've started to even install these experiences in some of our clients, we've actually kind of seen some of the data come through and it is very much what you would expect. Either people hit deny or they hit accept all, but those that select the few that there are usually do not check marketing off on the box, right? And so as a marketer, this is kind of frustrating for me because now I'm limited in what I could collect. And so now I have to think about, okay, what can I use that I would normally pitch as a marketing data set, like behavioral data, or is this now analytics data? What's the use case of this data? You kind of have to go through that exercise now of thinking, okay, if I can collect this, this is what the optimal experience will look like. If I can't collect that, this is what the defaulting experience looks like. And so kind of going back to that whole thing of marketers being a little bit more technical now, you know, you have to put a lot more thought into any program that you put out now, because essentially in one case, you want to build something that's much more personalized and hyper relevant to the user. On the other hand, though, you have to think about the lowest common denominator of what you actually have available. And so we sort of see that this shift, and again, privacy compliance across the board definitely needed to improve. This is wholly justified in terms of a movement and likely will continue, there's definitely no way that momentum is going to stop now. So now it's more about applying that thinking to each of the individual programs that we run to say, what is the sensitive data that I need and just basic data that I need to collect in order to power this thing and start to tear out what the outcomes of that program will look like after a user sort of invokes, like, this is what I'm okay with you knowing about me. How are leading brands using data to bring more deeply personalized experiences to market? Find out on Data Unlocked, driving better marketing with better data. You can listen to more episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. This podcast is sponsored by Simon Data. We help marketers unlock their customer data to deliver a better customer experience at scale. Yeah, it's a great point. And, you know, there's this tremendous complexity here. And I think this sort of you know, notion of graceful degradation is a notion that as an engineer, you know, by trade for myself, are things that we're deeply familiar with, but, you know, to a marketer is sort of somewhat new territory. Maybe we can talk about just putting it all together. You know, at the end of the day, everyone loves some cool personalization and, you know, omni-channel experiences. But at the end of the day, if it's not driving results, engagement, revenue, and everything in between, it just doesn't matter. So maybe you can talk about, you know, what that looks like and sort of what best practices you see. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting, right? When everybody wants to do a multi-channel experience and oftentimes the thing that stops people from doing it is the initial setup costs that go into it. 
And then the farsight thinking of the maintenance in order to actually have a program in place for the specific channel. And that's always kind of been a bit of a blocker, right? Everybody's like, I want to do SMS marketing, but I A, feel uncomfortable with sending texts to people. So I got to get over my own personal fear. And then B, I have to actually collect phone numbers and I have to then opt people in. And then I have to sort of have a program in place to actually make the thing valuable and give them a reason to sort of collect that data on their behalf. So that has always been a challenge in the marketing space. That's why email has always been the most fundamentally part of any marketing experience because, hey, I have to collect an email address as a part of a transaction anyway. I have to send a receipt. So if I have to do this anyway, there's no real friction to it. You know, phone number again through transaction has been a lot easier with transactional SMS. But as people start to think about marketing SMS, push notifications, I have to get people opt in to push in app notifications. I have to build uh, branded experiences that work across multiple devices. Like there's just some, so much sophistication to it and so much have a thought in terms of how does this piece roll up into the larger program. And I think that's actually where most of the creativity is done as well. And so a lot of times what teams will default to is just to say, hey, I'm just going to send another email because I have a sale I have to get out the door and I've got three weeks to prep for it or I've got a month to prep for it, but I have to drive all these creative assets. I also have to drive the creative assets for my paid program. So there's sort of cohesiveness across the whole experience. And then it's like, oh, do I really want to do like five more copy requests to get uh, all the different variations of SMS and push? So I really want to do an in-app message. And they look at the numbers and they say, well, it's the same as the email audience. So it's really just complimentary. It doesn't feel like it's net new. But the reality is that, you know, and this has sort of been the, the mantra all along, is that users are going to pick a channel that they want to engage most with, and that's where they're going to stick to. And so the value in multi-channel is it's not usually realized after the setup. It's realized in the longer term as, as you give users an opportunity to actually engage on that channel and decide for themselves, is this where I want to engage with this brand on? And because of the enormous setup cost it takes to get there, and by setup cost, I don't just mean like acquiring a, another tool for it. I mean the investment in marketing resources and thinking about the standing up of that program and the discipline that you now have to think of all your programs as multi-channel has always been a difficult decision for marketers. And ultimately what ends up happening is, okay, let's deploy the same message across all the different channels, which is, it's not a bad starting point. As long as you have the optimal vision to say, hey, I'm going to optimize this to get me to the point where I'm actually going to send this in the channel where the user engages the most. And then maybe I'll have one backup channel just to make sure that they have the opportunity to engage with it. Because for whatever reason, you can't control, you know, sometimes things end up in junk boxes because Gmail decided that day they were going to filter things in the junk. Maybe they had an issue with their notification center and, and the app. And so it really is both a mix of giving people the opportunity to engage with you as well as sort of their preference to engage. Now, again, this is a very challenging problem that a lot of marketers come across because of the upfront investment costs. So what I normally tell marketers as part of my consultation to them is to say, the kind of thing that you need to think about with this is just do it a little bit at a time and just go one channel at a time and sort of see what it's like, because you have to help your team orient their thinking to be sort of multi-channel, omni-channel experts. And you can't necessarily siphon your team away or silo your team in such a way to say, hey, you know, you're our SMS marketer and you're our email marketer. Because the more that you do that, you're just going to kind of end up with the same problem that you've had all along, which was now I have no cohesiveness between my entire program. And so I would say that that's where agencies like ourselves kind of come into play to help augment that capability on the team. And it also just comes from a real strong investment from the top and having that alignment with your core marketing team to say, hey, we are going to do this. And these are the practical steps that we're going to take together. And we know it's not going to pay off for three months or four months. And we're okay with that. We would rather have the foundation than nothing at all. 
Uh, and when you sort of look at driving towards results and putting it all together and having it all work, like what kind of KPIs are, you know, do you sort of look at it as the best yardsticks of success? Yeah, I think in general, it's so everybody's going to say, well, conversion, right? I mean, that's the golden rule. But to me, and this is actually an interesting thing that somebody on your podcast had sort of brought up previously is while conversion may always be the sort of golden rule, there's a lot of value in just brand engagement. And those sort of underlying behavioral metrics that we want to drive that get somebody to actually get to that point of conversion. Because we know it doesn't matter, like we can think of email as a very transactional channel, but it's also a very strong relationship building channel. Push also feels transactional, but again, can be a relationship building channel. And so I think that if we orient our thinking more around the type of relationship building, then to me, the core KPI would be engagement, just broad engagement. Like, are you clicking on emails? Are you, you know, are you clicking on links and SMS messages? Are you tapping through push or at least opening the app after you receive a push? To me, those are the kinds of core engagements that, that signal to me, hey, this is a user who is at least interested in our brand and is feeding us some data about them. Okay, so now how can we take this data and then get them to a place where they feel comfortable enough to convert with us? And then that will eventually lead to the conversion. So I would say those two are usually the primary KPIs that I go for. But again, your product might not necessarily be a conversion. It might just be your SaaS product. And to you, it's more important to have ongoing general engagement with the different tooling that you have. Like say, hey, I'm an analytics software and I want people to build a chart with me once a month. And so if that's my end goal, that's my conversion, then my engagement might be things like I'm looking at data from other people's charts or I am playing around and doing some analysis. I might not actually finalize my chart that I'm building, but I'm doing some playing around to figure out what this data is, or I am logging in to receive a weekly dashboard that's sent to me. And so I think if we sort of prioritize, especially from a team's perspective, the KPI around engagement, it just frees marketers to be a lot more focused on a core user experience, as opposed to everything being a transaction, 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 which up front, it might look good, but over time, we know that there is a ton of exhaustion that people will get with your program and it will churn out pretty quickly. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And what we see in the market as a technology provider is just sort of a, a bit of an over-indexing around bottom of the funnel optimization. Everyone wants you know, a good abandoned cart email, and they certainly work, you know, but really the action and the real points of differentiation occur higher up in funnels. And part of our product strategy is this, this notion of micro-conversions and the insights within that, and to ask along the customer journey, what are the points of education? What are the points of incentivization? What are the points of really just understanding whether or not a customer is interacting with your brand and your products for the right reasons? Exactly. And it's funny that you brought up the abandoned car piece, because that's actually an interesting thing where when you normally look at optimizing a program, you start at the thing that's going to drive the most conversion, which makes sense. You know, I can squeeze a lot of juice out of my abandoned car program. I can drive a 3% increase in conversion, which is going to be a huge amount of transactional dollars for me at the end of the day. And that's true. But email and push and SMS are these channels where you really feel the effects of diminishing returns very, very quickly. And often enough, it's just blatantly obvious when all the tweaking and optimizing is only going to squeeze you so much more until you have a larger audience to work with. And so the way that we at Ragnarok sort of look at our strategic programs is to say, all right, let's start with those high value programs, but very quickly, let's go to the, the underlying activities that get somebody to actually join that audience, right? So what are the types of things that get somebody to actually add something to their cart? What does that product experience look like? What does the messaging experience look like? You know, am I sending a weekly or biweekly newsletter that says, hey, you know, we have these new arrivals and here's what they are. Like, okay, that's a good first step. We're just trying to build a relationship with you. But then it's to sort of gather more information off the back of that. Say, I'm selling pants and that's my company. I sell pants. And so it's to say, 
hey, it's winter. Maybe it's time to sell pants. You know, it's time to buy some pants because it's going to get cold out. So here I have a whole program about the changing of the weather and why pants are important. But really, there might be even a broader story to tell there that's beyond just kind of a simple blast type approach to say, hey, you know, do you have any important events coming up that new pants is going to make you feel more confident? And so that kind of changes the story now to we're moving not only to a more personalized point of view where we're saying, hey, now we have to collect does somebody have a more critical event in their life coming up that we need to collect that information, know what it is, then use that for a marketing purpose. But then also to sort of say, we're not just going to send out emails to people because we think that it's volume business. And the more that we send, the more that we get. And it changes that notion for the marketer to say, okay, like, yeah, maybe I have my baseline program that I send everybody, give them an opportunity to engage with me, but I want to quickly divest myself into a more personalized program that's much more centered around, you know, if I could collect this information from them, what could I do with it? Or if I had this sort of end goal in mind in terms of, you know, what would a really kind of good customer for me look like, then how do I get them there? And what are those underlying steps along the way? So I think part of it is just reframing the challenge. And then it's also to, as a marketer or a product or an analyst or anybody to sort of look inward and say, do I feel good about this? You know, because a lot of that intuition that we have as marketers is often right. If you're saying to yourself, I feel like I'm sending too many emails, you're probably right. Although for some people, they don't care. They want to engage with you and they'll just continue to engage with as much as you send them. That's great. But you're talking about like five to 10% of your entire audience. But what about the 90%, right? And so that's where some of that intuition coupled with thinking through some types of personalization programs that can really augment that user experience is really going to make more of the difference. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think we see the market heading in the exact same direction. I think you know the future of marketing from our perspective is really turning every marketer into a bit more of a data scientist. And what does that mean? You know, it means relying on human intuition, you know, the creative process first, you know, with data as a supporting asset. I think there are certainly contrarians on the other side, I should say, who believe that data science will just sort of replace this whole process in the coming years. But it's certainly, I think we're very far from that you know, ever happening. Yeah, you know, that's a very interesting point. So we actually see in a lot of the clients that we work with is they want to do more machine learning. We want more personalized, machine-driven product recommendations, or we want the machine to pick for us what channel they should receive communications on. And yeah, I mean, you can kind of build something like that and, you know, it can be really smart and you can power a lot of really smart people to build this thing. But at the end of the day, we're human, right? Like we're all very human. And so as much as we want a machine to make decisions about how we should communicate with other humans, you kind of take that step back and you say, that doesn't really make any sense, right? There's only so much, a machine is a tool that we can use, but it can't do our work for us, right? Like we have to sort of have the machine be as it, almost like an augmentation of the program that we're running. So yes, like we should have machine learning be a part of our product recommendation engine. But if I'm a brand and my brand goals are not to have somebody have, you know, a hyper personalized experience because it's based on all their purchase history, but to actually have a thought on what this person should have next, right? To have a position, to take a stand on where I think the market should be. That is the part that a machine can't really do for you, right? Like a machine can very well interpret based on their past purchase history. They bought pants and a shirt. It's probably pretty likely they're going to buy shoes next. Okay, so let's show them some shoes. But if I'm sort of a marketer and I'm selling apparel, I'm sorry, I keep going back to the apparel example. It's so easy for everybody to kind of understand. But if I'm a brand selling apparel, I'm going to say, hey, why don't we just, what we find is actually... Most of the people that we sell to, they only have a few pairs of shoes. So if we try to sell them shoes as the next thing, then we're going to lose out on a lot of opportunity. What they really need 
is more shirts. Because what we find in the market is that people who have more shirts need more shoes because they have to match up things a bit more. And maybe that's, you know, again, a machine's not going to be able to tell you that. It's going to look at past purchase history and say, okay, this is the next thing you should buy. And you can input all kinds of logic into the machine and say, no, like weight heavily on shirts. But again, you're going to run into some conflicts with it and it's not going to give you the output that you want. And so that's where that sort of merchandising or that marketer or that product or that analytics team is basically saying, hey, you know, this is actually, you know, what the experience ultimately looks like. It's part of this from the machine and it's part of it from us taking a position and having an actual brand moment. Yeah, 100%. So with that, I think we're getting close to the, the bottom of the show here. Thank you for being on the podcast, Stephen. We appreciate you sharing your wisdom with us. Yes, it was really great being on, Jason. Really appreciate you having me. And uh, I'm looking forward to hearing more episodes. Yep. And thank you, everyone, tuning in to the Data Unlocked podcast today. And if anyone would like to learn more about Simon Data, you can contact us at hello at simondata.com. And for Ragnarok. Yes, you can email Stephen, S-T-E-V-E-N at R-A-G-N-A-R-O-K-N-Y-C.com. Great. Well, thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Jason. You've been listening to The Data Unlocked, driving better marketing with better data. You can listen to more episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. This podcast is sponsored by Simon Data. We help marketers unlock their customer data to deliver a better customer experience at scale.